welcome to the Rabbi Greenberg Show, the podcast that brings Jewish knowledge to you. Welcome to Torah Insights, Parsha's Bo, Bo El Paro. God tells Moses, come to Pharaoh, and then I will continue to punish him. And the Zohar says that Moses was frightened. And that's why God doesn't say to him, go to Pharaoh. He says, come, come to Pharaoh, come with me to Pharaoh. Why was Moses afraid of Pharaoh? There are many Kabbalistic spiritual explanations, but there's one explanation I saw, a very down-to-earth one. What he saw about Pharaoh in the realm of evil embarrassed him that he didn't have it matched in the realm of goodness. What was Pharaoh's quality, at least what was his nature that came out from this whole ten plague ordeal? That Pharaoh was action, he was stubborn, and his heart was hardened. Not only was God hardening his heart, first he hardens his heart, and as Maimonides explains, that the hardening of his heart was in and of itself a punishment by God for his hardening of his heart, which means that when a person sins, they become desensitized to such an extent that nothing could stop them from sinning, and that's when they lose everything. Pharaoh represented the epitome of stubbornness, of not giving in, no matter how hard the pressure was on him, he would not stop keeping the Jews as slaves. And Moses, when he saw that, he was embarrassed. Because Moses th- says to himself, look how a man could be so tenacious, so dedicated to his views that nothing in the world will make him budge. And what about me? In the realm of goodness, I'm not that committed to the same degree that Pharaoh was committed to his nefarious ways. This is a very basic lesson. King King David says in the Psalms, I became smart and wise from my enemies. What does that mean? One explanation is that there are a lot of lessons we could learn from evil. Famous story of Reb Zusha, a famous Hasidic master who said there are seven things you could learn from a thief. The way a thief goes about his profession Those are traits that can be used and should be used in doing good. So whenever we see how evil people are committed to their evil, it should make us reflect. And Are we as committed to doing good as they are committed to doing evil? And that should challenge us the way Moses was challenged. In this Torah portion, we have the last three plagues. The plague of locust, the plague of darkness, 
and the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn Egyptians. If we think about it, these three plagues represent the distortion of evil in three different ways. The plague of locusts, the Torah describes it as it covered the whole eye of the earth. What does that mean, covered the eye of the earth? So one way of understanding that is that the eye represents vision. And there's vision where you see things superficially. But this plague was that they couldn't even see things superficially. The plague of darkness was a plague where not only couldn't you see on the surface, but you couldn't go beneath the surface. You were just totally paralyzed. Your ability to recognize reality was covered. You were in the dark. And the final plague, the plague of the firstborn, represents that even when you have a certain amount of knowledge, that knowledge will not persist. It will not endure, just like the firstborn perished. There's no continuity. So in covering up our vision, there's covering up the surface vision, covering up the deeper vision, seeing the the context, the, the subtext, and the context, and then there's where you, whatever vision you have, it doesn't last. When Mashiach comes, it says that the light that God created on day one of creation will be restored. What was that light like? So the sages tell us that it was a light that you were able to see from one end of the world to another. You were able to see things in their entirety. You were able to see things in a multi-dimensional way. And that's how we will fare in the coming of Mashiach. Going back to the words, Bo El Paro, come to Pharaoh. The Zohar says that Pharaoh, an evil dictator, cruel monarch, but he has a spiritual parallel. The word paro means exposed. It's where all of the light, all of the spiritual light is fully exposed. And as the Rebbe explains in his discourses, in an earlier parsha, we read how Joseph said that a fifth of the produce would go to Pharaoh. The fifth represents the fifth level of the soul. The soul is divided into five levels. And the highest level, the most profound level, is called Yechida, the one that is totally oneified with God. So Pharaoh represents, in the spiritual counterpart of Pharaoh, the opening where all of the godly light is fully revealed, including the fifth level. And it's interesting that if you take the words Bo, come, and Paro, Pharaoh, 
you add them up, they add up to 358, the very same numerical value as the word Mashiach. That when will we come and enter into the spiritual dynamic of Pharaoh, that will happen when Mashiach is fully revealed. We will then be able to be exposed to the deepest spiritual levels, especially the level of Yechida, which represents the very essence of the soul. Right now, the essence of our soul doesn't manifest itself, but in the days of Mashiach, it will. We know that the plagues became increasingly more destructive. The very last plague is where every firstborn in every household perished. The, the, the eighth plague, locust, was up until the tenth plague, the most devastating plague, because locusts ate up all the crops. There would be massive starvation and famine, which would wipe out who knows how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. But sandwiched in between plague number eight and plague number ten, which seem to be the most serious of the plagues, you have plague number nine, the plague of darkness. Now, admitted, it's obvious that it's, it was a terrifying plague, but why would God sandwich in the plague of darkness, which doesn't appear to be the most destructive of plagues, it didn't kill anybody, presumably, unless someone tripped because they couldn't see where they were going and they hit their head against something hard, but that was an incidental thing. The plague itself didn't really cost lives. And why was that the penultimate plague? So Rashi addresses this question, it seems, and Rashi says, in the plague of darkness, two things happened. Number one, when they left Egypt, God told them to take and borrow the wealth of Egypt to take with them. So when they would go to an Egyptian neighbor and say that we would like some of your gold and some of your silver, the Egyptian would say, we don't have any. And the Jew would say, well, in the plague of darkness, we walked through your home and we found where you keep all your stash of, of wealth, all your jewels and gold and silver. In other words, the plague of darkness was not just to blind the Egyptians, but it was to open the eyes of the Israelites. That's the ultimate goal of the plague. The ultimate goal of the plague was not to destroy the evil. That was part of it. But the ultimate goal was to bring light to everyone else. That the Jewish people's eyes would be opened to see the divine light. In the plague of darkness, they were able to see all the treasures because their whole stay in Egypt was intended, as our Kabbalists teach us, to refine the sparks of Egypt and to take those sparks with them. Those are the treasures that God promised Abraham that his descendants will be slaves in a foreign land and they will come out with great wealth. He wasn't just referring to the material wealth, that too. He was referring to the spiritual wealth they took with them. And that's what the plague of darkness was about. It opened the eyes of the Jewish people to see the treasures 
that they accumulated when they were slaves in Egypt, they should realize that their slavery was not for naught. The slavery was not just torture and pain, but it was accumulation of spiritual wealth that was represented by the material wealth they took with them. That was the penultimate plague because it opened the eyes of the Israelites. But Rashi is not content with that. He has a second explanation. And the second explanation is, seems to be pretty negative, that there were many Jews who refused to leave Egypt. They were comfortable where they were. They got comfortable in, in slavery. This was something predictable. They knew where their food is coming from. They knew where their bed for, to rest will, will be. They didn't want to leave, and they all perished in the plague of darkness. In order for the Egyptians not to see that Jews were dying along with the Egyptians, they were all buried in the plague of darkness, so the Egyptians never knew that these Jews did not leave Egypt. In other words, this was the plague that affected the Jewish people as well. It was not just to punish the Egyptians, but it was to punish the Jews who became Egyptians and that's why it was the penultimate of the plagues and let's reflect a little bit on that explanation the Rebbe asks a very pressing question these Jews died why? because they were wicked in what way were they wicked? they didn't want to leave Egypt but there were Jews who were idol worshippers who left Egypt we're taught that the Micha came out of Egypt with a pestle, with an idol. And there were many other Jews who had degenerated into idol worship, and they took it along with them. There's no more heinous sin than idol worship. And yet those Jews came out of Egypt and were liberated. Just the ones who felt comfortable in Egypt were not liberated? Why? And the Rebbe explains that before the Jews left Egypt they did not have the status of God's children. That was not their status. They became God's children when they left Egypt and they put Egypt behind them. We're no longer part of Egypt. We're no longer part of exile. We are your children. And that's when God selected the Jewish people as his children, in which case he was able to even take the idol worshippers among them out of Egypt because these are my children. A parent has to always embrace his children even when they don't behave. We have to work hard to get them to do the right thing. We have to educate them. We have to expose them to truth. And very often it happens that children rebel against the ways of the Torah to the disappointment and chagrin of their parents. The worst possible thing that could happen is for the parents to disown their children, to alienate their children. It's my child. I will be, I will embrace my child unconditionally. And indeed, in the long run, that's going to help bring the child back. But even if the child doesn't come back, you never forget about your child. You always accept your child. And that way, God says, I know these Jews are idol worshippers, but they're my children. I'm going to have to endure their rebelliousness and eventually rehabilitate them. 
But that was only true if someone was willing to become God's child. But if you didn't want to leave Egypt, in other words, you were saying, God, you want to adopt me? We're not interested. We were already adopted by the Egyptians. Then how could that save you by virtue of the fact that you're God's child when you say, I don't want to be God's child? Well, when that happens, you can't force God to become your parent when you reject that very relationship. And that relationship can't save you because you rejected that relationship. But the Rebbe adds a very important caveat. That was up until we got the Torah at Mount Sinai. Once God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, we will never be able to detach ourselves from God. We can't, even if we say we don't want to be your children, once God chose us at Mount Sinai, we are forever bound to him and cannot sever our ties with God. And that, the Rebbe says, explains why at the Seder, when we have the Russia, the wicked son who disavows his connection to the Exodus, he's not interested. In other words, he's in the category of the children of the Jews who didn't want to leave Egypt and who perished in Egypt. But then we tell this Russia, this rebellious child, Elu Hayasham, if you were there, you would not have been liberated. And the Rebbe explains this is a comforting statement because the emphasis is on if you were there before the Torah was given and you refused to be part of God's family, you would not have been liberated. You would have perished in the plague of darkness. But you're not there. You, you're alive here after the Torah was given. And once the Torah was given and you were chosen, you cannot sever your ties with God. You are forever his child and he will always embrace you. There's no escape. A Jew cannot escape. We're living in a time when there are so many Jews who are rebelling against the Jewish people, who are supporting the terrorists. These Jews who have become so alienated, these are definitely in the category of the Russia, the wicked, rebellious son at the Seder. And we should tell these Jews, you disavow your connection to Judaism or to the Jewish people. You have sided with the worst of our enemies, the worst of the terrorists, thinking that you're not Jewish or your, Jew, your Jewish identities have nothing to do with the rest of the Jewish people. You should know that you cannot escape. You are a Jew. You are God's child. And you will re- end up becoming a faithful Jew. So get out of that fake identity that you have adopted. This is not who you are. A Jew is not an Egyptian. A Jew is not a member of exile. A Jew transcends exile. So don't insist on being part of that exile. One other point in this week's Torah portion, which is really the story of Passover last week and this week, we're reading about the Exodus. The Exodus represents one of the pillars 
of Judaism. There are so many commandments in the Torah that are connected to the Exodus, to remembering the Exodus. At the end of the Parsha, we have the mitzvah of tefillin, putting on the tefillin on our arm and our head as a way of remembering the Exodus. There are many other aspects of tefillin, but one of them is remembering the Exodus. And there's an actual mitzvah that we perform every day by remembering the Exodus. Passover, of course, it's a much more elaborate, not just a fleeting memory, where we just mention the fact that we were liberated from Egypt, but we spend the whole night of the Seder recounting the miracles of the Exodus. Why is there such an emphasis on the Exodus? And one of the answers is that the Exodus is not just a historical event. It definitely is a historical event, but it's not just a historical event that happened 3,300 years ago. Every day we are in Egypt and we are liberating ourselves from Egypt. The word Egypt, as we've said this countless times, and something the Rebbe emphasized over and over again, that in Hebrew the word for Egypt is Mitzrayim, and the root of that word is straits, confinement. You don't have to live in Egypt to be in Mitzrayim. And you could live in Egypt and not be in Mitzrayim. The Rambam Maimonides, whose yard site we observed not too long ago, lived most of his life in Egypt, but he wasn't in Mitzrayim. He was in Egypt, but he was not confined. He was a liberated person because his Jewishness, his connection to God was so strong that he was able to transcend the exile in which he lived. And there are many Jews who live in Israel, in Jerusalem, right near the holy temple site, and they could be in Mitzrayim, they could be in straits because they are allowing their godly soul to be covered up. So the objective of all of Judaism, not just a few mitzvahs that are directly associated with the Exodus, but every mitzvah we do, every time we learn Torah, we are liberating ourselves from Mitzrayim, from those straits that confine us. And there's nothing more exhilarating, nothing more refreshing and to know that we are free is, in fact, the Maharal that the Rebbe quotes so often in one, is, one of his works, Gevuras Hashem, says that what happened at the Exodus was not just emancipation, we were no longer slaves and tortured, but it meant that we were no longer in the status of being a slave. From that time onward, a Jew can never be a slave a Jew is always able to rise above the things that confine him. And that's why the Jewish people have survived. The exodus from Egypt gave the Jewish people the power to survive everything because we're not affected. We are affected superficially, but profoundly we transcend the exile in which we live since the exodus from Egypt. And every day we experience that exodus where it's reinforced. Every time we do a mitzvah, it reinforces it. And that's why there's such a great emphasis on the exodus from Egypt. Because it represents our true freedom. And it will usher in, every time we remember the exodus, it helps us usher in the ultimate redemption that will occur with the coming of Mashiach imminently.